This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. If you have your Bibles with you this evening, uh, you could turn to Acts, book of Acts. title of my message this evening is Spot the Wolf. Spot the Wolf. Uh, it's not a uh, story about a wolf called Spot. <laughs> uh, for all the options, I, uh, you wreck your brain sometimes at the very last to come up with a title for your message. and uh, 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 You go through a host of them sometimes, but Spot the Wolf is what we've been left with. Obviously a reference to Matthew seven fifteen, which you don't need to turn to it, where it says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And that's obviously where I get the title of my message this evening for, uh, from. Uh, but if you turn to uh, Acts 17, uh, I'm going to look at a few types of wolf that we might encounter, that we will encounter, I can assure you. Acts 17 and verse 16. We're very familiar with this passage. Um, Acts 17, verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and at the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. The inference is almost that Jesus and the resurrection were two separate gods that they were thinking he was talking about. And they took him and brought him into the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and, for, and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as, I, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And we don't need to go on there, but we know the idea. He goes on to pre- present to them the story of Jesus and God of creation who created all things, who created the world and sent Jesus, his son, to the earth. The apostle comes to the great debating arena to present the gospel, to present a message for them, the heart of Greek thought and philosophy. It's a fascinating place where they would debate ideas and they would debate doctrines and they'd debate, debate religions and all sorts of things. Uh, a real place for your, your mind to get exercised, I'm sure. Two different types of people were there, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and I won't go into what they meant, um, but they were two very popular beliefs at the time and very common beliefs that, that, would, that would have permeated society as well as the beliefs in the various gods of the Romans and of the Greeks and the other pagan religions. 
So Paul comes to this place and the wolves were there. They were obvious wolves. There were people who had a total different belief system and looking at them and listening to them, he could tell very plainly that these were wolves. They were opposite to what he believed. They were uh, uh, totally foreign to the things of God. They were unaware of them. Yes, he discussed earlier on with some Jews and, pe- and people who were believers in, in the one true and living God. He discussed the things of God. But here in the Areopagus, he's coming to a place where there's people of totally other beliefs, total other way of thinking, um, a total other mindset. The truth is the Christian message was unique at that time. It was unique in that world that he was encountering. It was a unique message, a message of the God of creation. Not all these many gods, these superstitious gods which we now think of, but here he's bringing a message about the one true God. You don't know him, you've you've got an idea. You know, they've covered their bases, the unknown God. This is the unknown God, just to keep an unknown God happy. But he's coming to say, this is, the, the truth is, I know the unknown God, and you can know the unknown God as well. They were enemies of God. They were foreign from God. And Paul brings this message of the gospel to them. I love what it says at the beginning there. It says, Paul was moved. That he's seen them with all their knowledge and all their learning and their very articulate way of speaking and their minds which, which understood and grasped concepts very easily. He, he was fascinated by them, I'm sure, uh, uh, but he was moved for them because even though they were learned men and women, even though they had a understanding and knowledge of a sort, he still recognized that they were lost that they were far, far away from the kingdom of God and from the things of God. They were living lives in a shroud of, of carnal and of worldly wisdom and worldly understanding, devoid of a, a knowledge of the one true and living God. And he recognized that and he was moved. You know, it's wonderful that whenever the people of God are moved, God does that to us. He moves us to reach out to speak to someone who is, is lost, to someone who is in a place where they think that they know it all, they think that they have all the answers, and yet God lays it on our hearts to speak to them, to share with them, to, to, to put ourselves out there, to be brave enough to make, it, to make a stand. A number of years ago, whenever we got married and we were on our honeymoon and we were in, in Thailand and I was walking through Bangkok, and, um, which is a horrendous city. Uh, I've been there once, I'll never go back uh, unless the Lord <laughs> guides me that way. But horrendous, you know, people were so enamored with the religion, the Buddhism and, and things like that there. And we went to the temples and we seen there, they actually called them the demons and, and the, the were intermediaries between the, the gods and the earth and all this type of stuff. And you were looking at it and you're going, that verse kept coming to me. You know, we who are in darkness have seen a great light. And there is a lot of people out there who have learning in some sort of philosophical or religious areas or, or some sort of religion or, or some sort of way of living. And they think they know it all, but truthfully they are in darkness. And they are, and, but we are the ones who have seen a great light. The other thing we can note from this passage is that Paul believed the message. He believed what he had to say. He wasn't coming to them, to these learned men, with a message of, I think there is a God in heaven. He wasn't coming with a, a, a presupposition like, That's, uh, there might be. He was coming with the assurance that there is a God who created all things 
that there is a God who created you and created I. He came with a confidence in that message. And I think, you know, as the people of God, we need to regain something of that confidence, something of that assurance that, hang on, it is okay to say, I believe the truth, that I believe the truth of God as revealed through the scriptures and through the life of Jesus is real and it is trustworthy. Paul had that assurance. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel as he went on to say later on when he was talking in in Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God unto salvation. He was assured of that. And he came to these learned men, which I would be intimidated to stand before. Okay, yes, I might have a a bachelor's degree, you know, but realistically, there's people out there who've got masters, there's people out there who've got doctorates in theology and in divinity and all that sort of stuff. I might be intimidated to come before, I remember just having to to share a few words uh, in front of people and there was a a professor there and you know in the Bible college and I was going like, oh no, how embarrassing, no, no. But you have to have an assurance that what you're saying is true, a confidence that it is true. And Paul had that confidence it didn't matter if he was speaking to people who had studied Epicureanism or Stoic, Stoicism or, or uh, um, Platonism or anything like that there. He, they might have done it for years and years, but he had a confidence in what he knew. Yes, he knew what they were teaching as well, because actually he goes on to quote, he says, as your prophets, as your writers have said. So he knew what they said, but he had a confidence in his message. He had a confidence in the God of the Bible. You know, popular, popular culture has this image of Christians and Christianities based on some sort of 1950s, 1970s image of what evangelicalism was, Sometime, some idea of what evangelical Christians were. You know, oh, they're, they're very passionate people, but they don't know an awful lot. You know, and they paint us into a box and they, they, they discredit everything that we would say. Oh, you're just, you're just really, oh, you're just excited. You're just, you know, enthusiastic. And especially once you attach the name Pentecostal to a thing, they, they even put you down, further down the list as well. But the truth is that the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. Whether we know everything there is to know or whether we don't, doesn't matter. But as long as we know the word of God and we know the truth of what the word says, we know the truth of who God is. Yes, an experience is a wonderful thing to have. It's a wonderful to know that I was a sinner and I am now saved and I have changed and I can see a change and that is great and that is absolutely fabulous and that is where we start at. But getting into the word, getting into the the Bible and seeing what God then reveals to us, how he teaches us, how he feeds us. It's a wonderful that that regardless of our learning in worldly terms, our accreditation, which is manufactured in this last couple of hundred years, regardless of that accreditation or whatever it might be, we can still with confidence come before people with a book, a book that has stood the test of time. A a book which is true, which has endured regardless of the generations and regardless of the theologians and philosophers who have come along and have tried to discredit it and tried to prove it wrong. We can have a confidence in that. So it is a good thing to have a confidence in what we believe. Whenever we face the wolves that are obvious, those who would come against us with, with, uh, I'm I'm a whatever belief, or I'm, a, I'm an atheist, or I'm a, a 
Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever, when I mean, they can have their beliefs, but if we know what we believe and we're confident in it, we know the truth of what creation and God teaches us. Creation teaches us that God exists. It shows us the way. Then we look at the scriptures and we find out more about him. And we find out that what we believe is true. If you turn your scriptures over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. As I said, those are the wolves that are obvious. Those who come in front of us or come to us with very obvious differences in beliefs. But the ones we, also, we have to watch out for even more are those who come to us as sheep uh, in sheep's clothing. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read a few verses, starting at verse number 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Verse six, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and powers. Paul warning the church at Colossae. Colossae was, about, it was east of Ephesus. It was a very much a trade city as well as, um, as many of the cities were. It was a large city. It was established by Greeks and Jews. There was a plantation of Jews there. So there was very much a mixing of beliefs. There's a lot of mystery religions. Gnosticism is talked about in its early days in this city. The buds of it and the elements of it, which is all about knowledge. And you see over and over again in the book of Colossians, talking about knowledge and about mystery and things like that there. So Paul is writing to combat these sort of things. It's obviously the book of Colossians. We don't know the exact circumstances to which it has been written, but we know what the answer to the circumstances were. The book of Colossians is the answer to some sort of problem that they were having. And he's writing to encourage them. So we can read and we can deduce that there is problems here with a mixing of uh, beliefs. The Jewish mysticism was also prevalent in this area. Um, uh, there was a mixture of teachings. Is most likely the major issue that he would face. Uh, we see it with the enemy of the gospel. It's not one big giant belief system, but it's, all, it's not always as simple as that. Sometimes it's a mixing. In the Old Testament, they talk, we, we're, theologically, they talk about syncretism, where they mix things together. They bring in a blend, and they say that this isn't good enough. We need to mix it with a wee bit of this. 
And sometimes you see it happening in churches and you see it happening in the Old Testament, maybe to accommodate a group of strangers, maybe to accommodate another community, maybe to bring people together, to mix things together. Let's, let's, let's bring in a bit of peace. Let's bring in a bit of harmony. Community and culture will work so much better if we mix together. And that's what happens over and over again. We see it throughout the Old Testament um, as well as through history of the world. Sharing of beliefs is one thing, but when our assurance and our confidence in what we believe becomes watered down, becomes up for grabs, then we're in trouble. This blending has long been something that God hates throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You see it over and over again, where God says, no, you are my people. Be ye separate as I am separate. Be ye holy as I am holy. Be separate from the world. Be ye separate from the other religions around us. Be a unique people, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, as they talk about in the New Testament. Be separate from the things of the world. Solomon, as it's been mentioned over the last few weeks, gave rise to great corruption in Israel. Solomon, who was the heyday of the, the, the nation of Israel for many people, they looked to Solomon and all his wealth and all his wisdom and the, the range of his influence throughout the Middle East and that area. And they go, oh, it was the golden age of Israel. And the truth is it was actually the beginning of the dark ages for Israel. Because in all his wisdom and all his wealth, as he married into these other nations, as he brought in the, the daughters and the royal, royal family into his family, and he started to build temples for their gods to make them feel a welcome. It says in 1 Kings 11 verse 7, it says, on the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built these temples to make his foreign wives feel, feel welcome. He started to compromise. This, this is meant to, be, meant to have been the golden age for the people of Israel. And here he's beginning to compromise. He's beginning to, let's make my, my 135th wife feel more comfortable. Let's make my 136th wife feel more comfortable. <laughs> you know, let's build a temple so she can go and worship her God. He started to open the doors for these things. And what is a temple naturally going to accumulate? It's going to accumulate priests. It's going to accumulate some sort of an industry where there's some sort of sacrifices, some sort of royal cloth or holy cloths are made, some sort of books are copied or scrolls, whatever. There's an industry built up around it. There's markets that spring up around it as well as they start to bring uh, items for people to offer and whatever else. You can imagine the people of Israel who have had somewhat of an insular life in Jerusalem, somewhat at this point before this with David, it's somewhat protected. All of a sudden, hey, oh, hang on, the king is now building a temple to Chemosh, or to, I'm, I'm pronouncing them wrong, I'm sure of it, but here, this is interesting. And it comes a bit of a talk and a bit of a conversation. And one day I'm out for a stroll in the hills with Sharon and uh, we're looking at the stars and about the valleys and all that. Oh, there's a temple, let's go have a look in there. And suddenly that what was once a thing that is far off is now on a very doorstep. And now there's a bit of, let's go in and have a look. Let's go in and suddenly there's a bit of a mixing and a bit of a blending. And maybe there's a, 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 an appeal to it, a subtle appeal, a subtle appeal. 
There's something of the mystery of it and maybe the majesty created by the atmosphere. You know, we very much sense whenever we go into some of these, go traveling and you go into some of these temples and some of these cathedrals, you very much get a sense of atmosphere. I'm not saying it's a godly atmosphere, but there's a sense of grandeur. There's a sense of, you know, wow, look at this place. You know, look at the, the colors, look at the imagery, look at the, you know, you can get overwhelmed by these things. Maybe it is a visual creativity, a beauty, a be, the beauty of artists. Maybe the elaborate folklore, maybe the utilizing of their unbound imagination or the sense of the dramatic or the calmness and stillness or the thunderings of choirs and drums. Can you imagine the people of Israel who were used to only the temple worship, all of a sudden they're starting to be exposed to these things? Maybe didn't happen in, in Solomon's generation, but the following generation, the following generation, the following generation. Maybe a wee bit of that would be okay in our services as well. Maybe we'd be okay that it would be a bit of that in our preaching and our beliefs. Maybe we just mix it in a wee bit. The appeal can be emotional, visual, aesthetical, uh, calming on the senses, modern or traditional, all of which can have a place. But when those things are elevated above the truth, then we are in trouble. We can learn things from other churches around us. There's no doubt about it. They can learn from us. Whenever we sacrifice the integrity of the word and the belief in what God has revealed through his scriptures, then we are on a slippery path to irrelevance and to closing our doors. God thinks very differently of, of this mixing, of this blending in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, he says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. See, God gives big latitude. Here's the basics of what I want. Now feel free to exercise your relationship with me within those boundaries. Have the freedom to express yourself within those things. But our human nature and the, the, the corruption of other belief systems pushes those boundaries further than they should go. Remember the story of Nahab and Abihu? Probably not. Leviticus 10 talks about they brought a strange fire unto God and to the altar. Strange fire. God had prescribed a way to make fire, a way to bring what is holy to God. He, he wanted them to come to him a certain way. He wanted them to understand that he wasn't like the other gods, that he wouldn't accept the leftovers, the, the scraps of your life. He wanted something specific. He wanted, yes, a little bit of effort, a little bit of cost to show in our devotion and our commitment and our passion for him. And it's wonderful that he does that. He wants us to display and demonstrate our commitment to him and our passion for him. He wants us to do that. But these two boys, they just thought, we'll just do it any old way. Listen, they come, to the temp they come to the altar of Baal in the country next to us, and this is the way they make the fire. It's a wee bit easier than, than going off and getting the prescribed things. I'll just do that. It says that God sm smoked them because they disobeyed him, and he, they discredited and they, they discounted what God had told them. Remember the book, uh, 2 Kings 22, it talks about the book of the law that was lost in the temple as the, as the corruption had spread. 
Ezekiel 8 and 9, Ezekiel's vision of the temple also talks about this mixing of beliefs. Where in the temple of God, the holy temple of God, they start to do things which were unspeakable. The things that they would do to worship other gods, they started to do it not just on the hills around Jerusalem in these other temples, but now they started to do it in the very temple of God. Over and over, God warns his people to avoid mixing their faith with the faith of those around them. Yes, it's important for us to share our faith. It's important for us to articulate what we believe. As Paul did in the Areopagus, as he proclaimed the God of creation has revealed himself, he has sent his son to die on a cross for us. And he's shed his blood and he's been rose again from the dead. Yes, it's important for us to share that with confidence and to listen because that'll help us with our response to them. But once we start to take in what they believe and we start to adapt what we believe in order to make them feel more comfortable, in order to make them feel more at home, then we can be in danger. As I read there in Second Col- uh, Colossians 1 verse 8, 1 to 8 I read there, I read 1 to 10, but verse 8 says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the word and not according to Christ. That word there where it says, beware lest anyone cheat you. In the original King James, it says, beware lest anyone spoil you. We lose a wee bit sometimes whenever it's translated again and again. Young's literal translation translates that verse as see that no one shall be carrying you away as spoil through the philosophy and vain deceit according to the deliverance of men, according to the rudimentaries of rudiments of the world and not according to Christ. Carried away as spoil. Carried away as spoil. See, the enemy of our souls wants nothing more than to lead the people of God away. He wants nothing more than to make us question what we believe in God. Yes, it's good to to question what we believe and go to the scriptures and find out, do we believe everything that's true? Is everything we believe true? We look at the scriptures and they're the ones that shine a light on us. We don't shine a light on the scriptures. You know, when I went to Bible college, that was one of the things I discovered is that there were certain things that I believed that I became, I I don't say a question, but I sort of went, hmm, why do I believe that? Why do I believe that? Do I believe that just because I always did? Because in one sense it sounded right? Did I ever actually analyze what I believed? And then I did, I questioned things. And I went back to the scriptures and I became more sure of some things more confidence in some things. And it's, there's a, a point where that is good and it's okay too. But the problem is once we start to question everything, once we start to question the very scriptures themselves, then we are in trouble. And the enemy wants to spoil it, wants to take us away as spoil. You can imagine the enemy as, a, as a, an army that would come in and would raid a city and would take away the spoils 
and would display them to the rest of their people and say, look what we have done. We have taken away these. We have taken away these. You can think of Rome whenever they conquered the, uh, Germania or when they conquered Jerusalem and when they conquered certain places. What they would do is they would take the men or the women or the people, usually the leaders, and they would take them up the, the, uh, through Rome, and I forgot the name of the street, and they would display them in a, in a royal triumph. Look what we have done. Oh, the glory of Rome. These are the spoils that we have taken away. And the enemy wants to do that with the people of God. Take us away and display us to God and say, look, these used to trust you. Now they don't anymore. They used to believe your word was enough. Now they don't think so. It's important that we're aware of these things. Beware lest anyone spoil you. They take you away as spoil. Over and over again in Colossians, in this passage we read, it talks about those who would deceive you or beguile you with persuasive words, philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. You know, thinking about it, thinking about this message, there's a few things. There's, I've came up with five areas, just thinking really quickly, that I think that they often question and they often throw up to us Christians as points of attack. And I'm not going to go into any depth on these, but these are five areas where the world and other believers because not, sometimes the wolf is the ones, the, the Epicureans and the Stoics who are standing far outside of the camp of Israel. But sometimes the wolves come in dressed as sheep. Sometimes they wear the title Christian and maybe they are. Maybe some of them are Christians. Let's be honest. Sometimes we hear people echoing things they have picked up from someone else and they haven't fully considered it. Not all, not all wolves are actual wolves. Sometimes a sheep is just repeating what he's heard a wolf say. But there's five major areas that, that we as Christians increasingly over the last number of years and increasingly so in the future again will be uh, attacked about, attacked on. And they are, first of all, the authority of Scripture, the person of Christ, Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, the Godhead and creation. The authority of scripture has been at, under attack for countless years, increasingly so over the last few years. They threw up questions about the relevance of scripture to modern life. Sure, it was written over 2,000 years ago, parts of it. Some of it even 3,500 years ago. You know, how can that be relevant to modern life? Does those words really mean the same talks about exegesis and eisegesis. Maybe it doesn't mean that. Maybe it means something else. They put those seeds of doubt and seeds of confusion into our minds. Distrust of the word, distrust of the things of God can even lead to cynicism, uncertainty, and unbelief. And this is the enemy's plan to corrupt and to lead us astray, to beguile us. Beguile us was the word that kept coming up when I was thinking about this, to, to subtly through, the, through lies and through deceits, through manipulations, to subtly make us question the things that we have held sure. The person of Christ, the historicity of Christ, did he really exist? Of course he did. The divinity of Jesus, the purity of Jesus, he led a spotless life. The power of Jesus, raising the dead and performing miracles. Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection did he really rise from the dead? 
I've been doing a study on the resurrection for the last number of months. Oh, what a wonderful, glorious truth that is. The historicity of it is historically true. The efficacy of the cross, the significance of it. They'll question these things. They try to cause us to question them, to bring in a little bit of doubt, to bring in a little bit of question. Do you really believe a man rose from the dead? Do you really believe that? The Godhead, by that I mean the existence of God. Does God really exist? Is there a God? How do we know there's a God? You're talking about an old book. You know, how do you know there's a God? The relationships of God, of the Godhead and the roles within the Godhead. Creation, the first cause to the universe. Evolution, creation, the existence of miracles. These are all things that they will come against us and they'll sow seeds of doubt, seeds of confusion. And I'll be honest, I mean, I believe in, I entirely believe in creation. God created the heavens and the earth entirely. And a little bit to my shame, I couldn't say, I've, 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 I could articulate with great clarity the truths of it. Uh, uh, there's other, other men who could do a far better job than I, but I, I just I entirely believe it. But in this day and age, these are unpopular things to believe in. You're considered a, a loon. You're considered a, a, a weirdo if you believe these things. So already, automatically, we've got, we've got a, a, a something coming against us. You know, yes, maybe we can, we, we can uh, um, study these things better. Yes, we can articulate them to a degree. But, you know, it doesn't mean we have to compromise. You know, yes, we can say, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I have no doubt about it. I believe the earth is, what, six and a half thousand years old. I have no doubt about it. No doubt that God created and he is a God of creation. No doubt about it. They can throw up all they want and I can, I, I can ask, they can ask questions and I might have things that I cannot answer. But on the same hand, they have got things that they cannot answer. The authority of scripture is a big one. It's, it's, the, it's the main one that they'll often attack Whenever you read some of the, the modern uh, uh, past hundred years, the theologians and some of the things that they have said about the scriptures and about God through the scriptures and you're reading them and you're going like, how can you even call yourself a Christian theologian? They bring into so much doubt and so much uncertainty to these things. They make you do mental gymnastics even with doctrines and beliefs and stuff. And I prefer just to read the scriptures as they are written. They were written. They weren't written glorious truth of it. They weren't written for theologians. They weren't written for academic geniuses. They were written for everyone. Written for us all to read and enjoy. All of us to, that was the wonderful thing of the Reformation, to get the scriptures into our own language so we could all read it. And that's the wonderful truth about the scriptures. And they want us to start questioning everything and doubt everything. It's the cool thing, you know. All the kids are doing it. They're doubting everything nowadays. I'm, I'm sorry. I might be old-fashioned, but I believe in certainties. I can't live by doubts. I can't live by questions. I can't live by unbelief, by cynicism. I need to have sureties, verities, as the scriptures talk about. 
So Paul warns the, the, the Colossian church about these beguiling influences which would pose questions, which would try to get them to mix their beliefs, try to get them to accommodate the world, to bring other beliefs in. We see it in our day and age with this movement, in, in mainly in America, it must be said, with Chrislam, where they try to bring Christ and Islam together. But there's other places around the world where there's other beliefs. You know, um, my dad for a number of years was uh, very outspoken, often preaching about certain things, certain preachers and certain doctrines and that type of thing. And those are, that's, it's, that was fine, that was what he did. And I find more importance sometimes in preaching about the word, preaching about Christ and those type of things. And those there are five points that I have mentioned there about the authority of Scripture, the person of Christ, Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, the Godhead and creation. I find mentioning those things. And then what happens is whenever you hear something that's against those things, when you hear that something that's bringing doubt into those things, when something that's presenting another image of Christ, when something that's presenting another image of his work on Calvary, you'll be more attuned to hear it regardless of where it comes from. Sometimes the wolf of the door is a big, bad, ravening wolf, but sometimes it comes dressed in sheep's clothing. They come at us with questions. Is it true that they, what they say about the Bible being written so, so long ago? How can that all be true? Look what the Bible says about women keeping their heads covered when, uh, when men are present. That's so oppressive. Pastor touched on this there last week. You know, they come up with those questions to make us doubt, make us question what we believe. But it's also, it has to be said, that's also an opportunity for us to speak to them. They might pose the question, but if we prepared an answer, we can answer. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses, they prepare their testimony. They prepare themselves to stand at your doorstep and give you a presentation of what they believe. They prepare for that moment at your doorstep. They don't prepare a sermon to stand in front of 50 or 100 people or 200 people. They prepare for a one-on-one -on -one encounter. Maybe we should do more of that, preparing for those questions. The church at Colossae was subject to subtle attacks, insinuations about God and Jesus, the Bible, the truth, a belief, a bending of a, Blending of belief, I've misspelled that, and I read it wrong as well. Uh, a blending of belief to allow for all beliefs to be accepted. It, on the left-hand side there, we turn over to the left. Paul prays a prayer for the church at Colossae. He knows what their situation is. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they're facing. He understands the philosophy that he encounters in Athens. He understands as he's traveled through the region what people have said, what people accommodate, how people are, are mixing things and syncretism. He understands those things. And Colossians chapter one, verse nine, he prays a prayer for them. Prayer for them. He says, for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. 
that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, with all patience and long-suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What a glorious prayer. He's praying for the church at Colossae. And you know what? God and his Holy Spirit are praying that same prayer for us because this is written for us as well. God wants us to be full of his power, full of his understanding, knowledge of him. Be filled with knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all, uh, with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Glory to God. Glory to God. God knows us. He knows the temptations that we face. He knows the peer pressure that we face in this world. Peer pressure. I thought, I, I thought once I left school, I wouldn't have any peer pressure. That's not true. We all face peer pressure. Those around us putting pressure on us, whether verbally or subtly, pressure to conform, Pressure to adapt to their thinking, to adapt to what they believe. Pressure to be inclusive, especially in this day and age. We must be inclusive. There's peer pressure upon us. We were good at thinking whenever we were children and growing up, or we looked at our children and we said to them, that's peer pressure, resist it. We were good at saying that to the kids, don't you go with the crowd. If he stuck his head in the fire, would you? But we too are faced with peer pressure to conform. That shouldn't stop us or make us afraid of what we have. We have a wonderful message which is inclusive, just not inclusive in the way that they want it to be because it is a message for all mankind whether you're from Northern Ireland or from the Philippines or you're from Africa or you're from the you know, Middle East or wherever you're from, whatever your station in life, whatever your origins in life, this is a message that is as inclusive as you can get and you can't get any more inclusive. It's a wonderful, glorious message that we should have confidence in. These beguiling philosophies will encourage us to compromise the enemy exalts in those that he leads away from the truth. He leads away in triumph, away from the purposes of God, away from the peace of God, away from the fulfillment and favor of God's plans for our lives. Over and over again in the New Testament, it warns of these this attempts to deceive. First Timothy 4, last, in the last times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Seducing, the woo us. Sometimes it's an obvious, sometimes it's not so obvious. I was out washing the car the other day and 
I've discovered that our, my dog or our dog has a seducing spirit. Sometimes it comes up when you're eating your dinner and it just starts pawing at you. Give me the food, give me the food, give me, feed me. And it does it so in your face. And you know, you go like, get the way, will you? You're not getting undefinished. And then other times when I was washing the car and you know, and you're washing away, she does this thing. She loves me throwing the ball for her. And she does this, she picks up the ball and she's like Pepe Le Pew. If you remember Pepe Le Pew, the cartoon. And she walks past your wee tail up with a ball in her mouth, as if to say, wouldn't you rather throw the ball from me than wash your car? (laughs) Seducing spirits, beguiling. Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the whole armor of God, being prepared for these things. Talks about the helmet of salvation. Talks about having your loins girt about with truth. We have a truth. We have a glorious message which we don't need to change. We don't need to make it more dramatic. We don't need to put any bells or whistles on it. We don't need to make it more appealing because it is so appealing. It is so truthful. Matthew seven fifteen. beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are, they are ravening wolves. We need to evaluate everything in light of the scriptures, in light of God's truth to us. We don't evaluate the scriptures in light of the way that they read Shakespeare and they just try to decide what Shakespeare really meant. No, 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 no. Yes, we have to understand what the context was and all the rest, but these should be revealing a light on us. Over and over again there in that passage that I read to begin with there in 2 Colossians, it talks about in him, in whom, your faith in Christ. So walk in him, built up in him. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him. That is the key to combating these attacks and these subtle attacks is to stay in Christ, to stay sure of who we, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I have assurance of it, a confidence in it. We've read on a bit further there, Second Colossians uh, verse 15, it says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. It's the same idea that they used to talk about making a spoil of us and leading us away and making a spoil of us. Jesus, on the other hand, is going to make a spoil of them. Whenever we, have a, we remain in him, we abide in him, and we keep focused on him, and we keep focused on his word, and keep focused on who he is, then what he does is he makes a show of them. Takes, you know, isn't that wonderful? So tonight, I just hope this is a message that is encouraging. Yes, a message of warning, but it's a message we have a confidence. We have a God who is still a good God. We have a message which is as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's still a transforming message. It's still an inclusive message. Yes, we can change the presentation of it sometimes, but we don't need to change the heart of it, the truth of it. Hold fast to what we know to be true. Hold fast to the truth of his word, and then he will lead you through the strife in life. He'll lead you on in his world. Amen. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.